Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, welcome to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Good to be here as always. It is. For those of you that aren't uh, on the video version on YouTube, which you are going to miss some things today, I must say. Um, you may have noticed that we have a new uh, disclaimer, quick one, into the show because Drew last week said I looked too young. You get a tan in this one too. So. Yeah. I think- um, Quite tanned. I think one of the things that- Post fishing. Yeah, I wish. Um, one of the things that I realized is that if, if you want the cure to getting old really quickly to start a business, um, that's that's what I've figured out. It's taken me this long to figure out. But you know what else I was thinking of, Drew? Some, some people may have already noticed this by listening to the video. Um, can I just jog your memory of something that happened last week on the show? I'm just going to just one second. I'm just going to remind everyone what happened last week. You have to have a choice between going to maximum security prison for one year or going for as long as it takes you to solve a Rubik's Cube, which would you pick? Rubik's Cube, definitely. It's not Why? that hard, is it? How long would it take you to solve a Rubik's Cube? I don't know, like an hour? Mm. I think. I don't know. We, I've seen, I think there's like 12 moves out there for a Rubik's Cube that you can work out pretty quickly if you practice. I'm going to get you a Rubik's Cube. And if you can solve it in under an hour, I'll go to prison for a year. How about that? My, my problem is staying concentrating on it for an hour. Anyway, it keeps going on and on and on. But what would a man do? How far would a man go to not be in the ring, to not be the man in the ring and go in there and solve the Rubik's Cube? Well, I'll tell you what he'll do, folks. He'll start trying to cut a turnip or whatever the heck you were trying to cut this week and just about slice his finger off. Which- well, I was trying to tell the story. I was using some sort of circular saw rather than a mandolin. So, so Drew has Drew ended up in hospital this week, and we tried to record yesterday. I think it was or the day before, and he was trying to cut something. Like, make any time a white man makes a salad, you know things are going to go wrong. <laughs> but um, what actually, <laughs> what actually happened? Uh, well. It was it was slicing fennel, not um, turnip. <laughs> and if anyone anyone who's, who's eaten fennel knows fennel needs to be incredibly thin, otherwise you get that really licorice flavour. Uh, mm. But like any good man, I um I took the guard off the mandolin when I was doing it, uh, and a short trip to the ho- um, not a short trip, it was a short trip to the hospital, but uh, it was a long time at the hospital. So, so- I ended up. Um, Losing, I didn't lose it. <laughs> the finger stayed attached, uh, and had four stitches after about twelve hours in the waiting room. Wow, mate! And That's, I'm not doing um, a Rubik's cube anytime. I probably could, still could. It's my. Is that your pointer? Yeah, pointer finger. Yeah, the, the old like you need a finger to solve a Rubik's cube. Like it's like <laughs> I, I didn't realize you would go to this extreme to get out of the Rubik's cube Just challenge. To avoid it. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is what happens when you try to eat healthy, isn't it? Ouch! 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 Ouch!
No, Daddy bit me. <laughs> oh, God. This is what we're going to do it in person. Then you can't put all these extra cut scenes in there. Uh, I was trying to find any and every finger-related joke I could find on the internet. And thanks to Monique for pulling together some material from the internet. Oh, thanks, Monique. <laughs> the only way is up anyway, so. Yeah. Just point me in the right direction yeah. of the dividend stocks. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, what have you been working on this? Apparently, week? humans are like lizards anyway, so it'll be about a week and we'll be back to normal. And I can still type, really, somehow. Still working on the retirement book, so it's progressing pretty strongly. Retirement book. Should've, What's should've the retirement book kind of going to cover? Like, tell, retirement. Tell <laughs> oh, hmm. yeah. What's uh, the, the emotional and financial? Uh, it is the golden years, navigating retirement, or you know, the basically helping support people make better decisions in retirement. So, hmm. like everything we do it. Uh, Waddle, it's going to cover the whole gamut from you know, free kicks in retirement to dealing with the emotional stresses, finding purpose in retirement, how to invest differently in retirement and kind of bring all of it together with some probably similar to Morgan House with some simple rules. You know, we've got our golden rules of investing for retirement, but there's also the golden rules of mm. a successful retirement. So uh, aim is to have the manuscript finished in the next week or so and for print March, April next year. Oh, wow. That's great. Do you have a publisher Definitely. yet? Yeah, Major Street. So I think the same group that um, Kate Campbell published with as well, Leslie yep. Williams. Yeah. And it's, oh, cool. I, so you'll be able to get that on bookshelves soon. Yeah, I think the key is those practical examples as well. You know, we've seen, we've seen as you see, thousands and thousands of families that are heading towards retirement and all the various different issues and outcomes that can happen so using our experience and providing case studies throughout that that shows that you know we all probably think we're different but there's some there you know there are we're all very similar in most ways mm. so this would be a book because i'm lo and behold i'm actually still just learning about this book by the way everyone like i'm i'm just like you guys so this book would be for predominantly for people in retirement or people preparing for retirement like the aim is a bit of both. So anyone, you, know, you could pick it up at 20 or 30 as long as the, the you know, tone is right. I think we think the tone is right, but gives you some strategies to do in your 30s, 40s and 50s. A lot of it is focused on what to do in retirement. But I mean, like every part of our, we prepare for our careers by studying and, and you know, doing all kinds of extracurricular activity. We don't prepare for retirement. So there's so many things you can do before that help that transition where the industry financial advice industry the investment industry doesn't do it well at all you know most people finish their job next day they get a statement from their super fund saying here you go and it's like what do i do next um there's no there's no transition there's no support that's why people turn into podcasts to blogs to everything else yeah yeah fair um that's kind of cool there there are a couple of retirement books but not that many and not that many that are kind of really succinct and focused on people particularly in retirement like I know you've done a bit of work with John Glass and we heard him speak the other week at the retirement event, but um, that's good. That's good, man. I'm actually excited. Um, it's going to be great to have two authors in the studio. Well, is Jamie an author? Is it like a co-authored thing? Are you guys working together? Yeah, on this yeah we're co-authors. So Jamie and I both, you're the, you'll be the odd man out. Yeah, I was going to say. So it be like you, Kate, James Dunn, uh, Jamie. Has anyone else in the- Evan's the, written a book too, hasn't he? Evan's, Evan's yeah, written a book. Pete Wardens written. Everyone's written a bloody book, except it's, you, um, except me. I can't write, so that would help. Credit to uh, you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was actually um, wondering. Do you ever watch John Wick? I will serve. I will be of service. Very well, my son. Cast aside your weakness and reaffirm your fealty to the table. Mr. John Wick, great and chauff, Warini. And anyway, John Wick goes on to cut his finger off. Yep, I thought so. I just knew it was going there. Of course it was. More context. If you ever want to just like numb your mind, like forget psychedelics, I guess, and just watch John Wick. It's one of those shows where you can just sit there and just stare at the screen and everything just blurs into one big action scene. Um, there's a time and a place for it, I guess. Anyway, what else other than trying to cut your finger off? What have you been working on? 
Uh, a lot. There's a lot happening in markets at the moment. Um, a lot happening in inflation and trying to, you know, and retail sales, trying to set something for the for the next 12 months, get some idea of what's happening. But then I'm back to writing. I'm not sure if you've seen that. So been pumping mm. out quite a few articles um, for our publications that probably similar to yourself. You, <clears throat> as we do here, you have conversations with a lot of people during the week. And when you're listening, there's so many takeaways or applications if you when you're actively listening and interviewing people so i pulled a few just random articles out of um conversations with other financial advisors or yourself that's cool so you just like you pull them together and publish i know you do the daily and everything yeah i think one was this idea of the use of language and something that uh, i think i referred to like yourself kate victoria divine uh in terms of how a lot of the advice industry has struggled to connect not just with younger clients but with clients in general and it's because the jargon that we use so we met another advisor um peter leggett if i think you met peter before and he he talks about portfolios almost like football teams um and how do you break down some of the words that we use you know duration carry um even fund manager itself isn't necessarily the best word either so how mm. do you how do you break down these language barriers and make them easier to understand for the, for the masses um and i think people like yourself have done much better at that than a lot of the industry has uh and that that's key to building long-term relationships as well oh thank you um for saying some <laughs> words um yeah i think it is i think the language that we use is has deliberately been um what a word. I love this word, uh, obfuscated. Um, it's a word that means things are unclear deliberately and we use that word and no one really understands what it means. But basically what I mean is we use words that deliberately uh, make things seem more confusing than they are. And we don't realise this because as financial professionals, we're indoctrinated into this world that accepts the language to make things simpler. But at the end of the day, um, a lot of the words that we use are just unnecessary just totally unnecessary so um and the abbreviations the acronyms like wow there's a tendency to over complicate simple matters and oversimplify complex matters i think if there's one thing that finance is known for it's that (laughs) yeah and we do but we there are it's interesting because there are like uh parallels between the simpler concepts and the more advanced concepts it's just if you go to a financial planner and they give you the simple concepts you feel like you know it and it can't be that easy um, and if you go to a fund manager and they you know, they say, yeah, we, we know valuation doesn't really work. So we just try and be generally correct. Um, if you get, if you go in there and someone doesn't have the confidence or the conviction in their abilities, there's no way you're going to hand over $200,000 for them to, to invest for you. Um, and that's just the, the realities of the way the kind of institution of finance has come together. Um, do you have a link to that that we can put in the show notes? Because that would be really interesting for folks to have a read. Yeah, definitely. it would be up on the yeah. Inside Advisor, I think, so for yeah. the advice audience, but it makes sense. Yeah, um, cool. And one of the other ones was finding a niche that, like in everything you do, uh, you find each of your podcasts has a niche, basically, um, mm. and advice practices need to find a niche as well. Could be anything. Yeah. Could be green. Could be retirement. Could be income. Could be age pensions. But finding a niche which allows you to concentrate more of your energy uh, and add more value to your clients. Yeah, become an expert, like a an Australian expert in that one domain. Um, yeah. I think that's one of the things. That's one of the things we've been talking about recently is how hard it is to get financial advice in retirement, um, and where do you go to find them, uh, and. If you do go to a lot of those places, like a lot of them have certain minimums or certain structures, um, but like some of those things make sense. But like it would be nice just to know I am a retirement financial advisor. This is what I specialize in, uh, which you guys do so well, but a lot of others don't. They're just It's, it's a totally different uh, thing. Um, I, I was chatting to... Um, I'm trying to, his name evades me. Uh, he's Sam and he's an associate professor at Melbourne University. We we're chatting to him last year about economics. And um, he was saying that like in your investing, you want to go as broad as you can, but in your profession, you want to go as niche as you can. So you want to, you want to become a specialist in your field and um, earn as much money as you can from being that one person that delivers that thing. But then for your investment portfolio, you want to be as broad as you can because you want to diversify and capture the benefits of diversification. It's quite an interesting way to, to think about it. Um, so 
I just I, I said this yesterday, but I had a bit of a I had a wonderful day yesterday. I should say that I started the morning at six a.m. recording with Shane Parrish, and that interview will be coming up soon for folks. Many folks will know him. I think he runs the best internet on a uh, best uh, website on the, the internet. Best internet. <laughs> he runs the best internet. He's actually a coder as well, um, but he runs the best website on the internet, which is fs.bog. It's the Farnham Street blog and community, the Knowledge Project podcast. He has written two books. The most recent is um, Clear Thinking, which is a wonderful book. Um, so it was great to connect with him. And I think he's planning, in, he may be planning to come to Australia soon. So that would be wonderful. I uh, caught up with uh, David Lamont from BHP yesterday. I got a lovely office, I must say. And Mike Kemp, um, former Barefoot Investment Analyst and uh, author of the Ulysses Contract. He was on Rask Live this week. So that will probably do, be turned into a podcast as well. So I just... I know I gave you a present this week, Drew, that was like kind of reflecting on this, but like the importance of gratitude is so important. Like it's just really lovely to be able to say that that's how you spend your day for me anyway. It's not everyone's cup of tea, but um, I think it's important that we practice gratitude in our life and that because it gives us a moment to stabilize where we're at and focus on the future in a positive way. Um, There's a the- quote that came out from Wiz Hatter and Ben up in Noosa. I think it was Brooke mm-hmm. Hansen who also oh, yeah. said pressure is a privilege. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, it is right because at the top, in the moment, you're thinking, "I've got to do this, I've got to do that." I've got, yeah. yeah, you know, all these different things that overwhelm you. But then you get you step back and you remove yourself. You're like, wow, actually, I get to do this. So that's pretty cool. Um, like we have some team, we have some team members overseas, and um, they, you know, don't have the same access. So until you experience that, you don't really get that appreciation. Um, I turned my to-do list into a get-to-do list. That was like my starting point. Oh, that's cool. I like that. A get-to-do list. Yeah. I like it. It's not always fun, but at least <laughs> at least every time you see it, it says you get to do that, not uh, you have to do it. Yeah, I like it. Um, it. This week, it would be remiss of us not to mention that uh, Charlie Munger passed away. Um, uh, as Scott. Sorry, I should be laughing at that. No, you just know you, you just got a quote that you wanted to share that he, he said because he was so witty. For context, um, yeah. um, I think Scott Phillips from Netflix said it really well when he said, "Like we lost one half of the world's best investment partnership this week," um, which you know Charlie Munger being the the partner investing partner of Warren Buffett, about a month away from his hundredth birthday. Absolutely wonderful investor, and I think all of us are thinking more clearly about two areas of finance and the world more clearly thanks to Charlie Munger. One is the idea of buying compounders. I think that's one thing that Charlie really brought to both Warren and to the investment community at large. But the second thing is actually, I think one my takeaway from it is his impact on behavioral finance. And yeah. I know we talk yeah. about like Daniel Kahneman and all these types of people for their prizes and stuff that they win about behavioral finance, but um, Munger definitely brought those mental models and the lattice work of mental models to the fore for business people. And it's just completely revolutionized the way people think about business. So, so few people outside financial services knew of Charlie Munger, too, which was weird. Everyone, pretty much everyone here knows of Warren Buffett. Yeah. But he was always, not, maybe not always, but for the longest time was his, not, it's like his equal. It's not the, yeah. I don't think it's second in command. He was basically his equal. Yeah, I put it this way. I if I had the chance to have dinner with someone, it would be Charlie Munger before Buffett. Um, and I think he, Munger's skill sets would be much more will will be in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years much, 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 much more valuable to investors and all of us listening to this than Warren Buffett's skill set of you know trying to find companies and these types of things. I think the behavioral elements and the the focus on psychology that Munger brought to the world is the one last competitive edge that someone could possibly have in the world of investing, um, at least in direct companies. And, and so, so the retirement book, he didn't retire until he was 99. Didn't retire until he was 99. There you go. Okay, that's We're still going. We're still going. Um, I asked you just quickly to grab a, one of your favourite quotes, Drew, and you did have a look <laughs> at one and it made you laugh. So give us one of your favourite Charlie Munger quotes, mate. It's very much about continuous learning, which he clearly did, and he kept working. And it was the idea that without this learning, this probably isn't the most appropriate quote. You're a one-legged man in an asking contest. Uh, you might have to blank that out. <laughs> That's fine. So, so the but, quote is, "You're it, without continuous learning, you're a one-legged, one-legged man, man in an asking contest. Exactly. It's just not going to work very well. And yeah. that, but that was so much his commitment to 
constantly learning and challenging. That's probably why you're saying he's he's a he would be a better dinner date than um, Buffett. Mm. It seemed like Buffett was more stuck in the historical ways, where he was able to adjust to the changing environment. Like he had comments on crypto. He he was very deeply considering all the new alternatives that were coming out and it's yeah. it's that willingness we we see it too often where you know the buffett quote is always if it's too complicated don't you know don't invest in it if you don't understand it and mm. i'm always on the other side of in educate yourself so you do understand it or mm. otherwise you can you miss out this massive broad universe of opportunities mm. yeah i like it uh, and i love the the one-legged man in the asking contest. <laughs> this is very what you would expect from him um, I guess what people have available now is they have um, all of the annual uh, Berkshire Hathaway AGM videos that they can watch through either Yahoo Finance or online on YouTube. But there's one resource that I think anyone who, like it goes over the head of most people that listen to it, I'm going to be frank. In fact, I'm pretty sure it went over the head of me when I first listened to it. But I only the reason I love this presentation that, Charlie did. It's called The Psychology of Human Misjudgment. It's a thing that you can get on YouTube and you can listen to it. It's not, you can't watch it. You can listen to it. Uh, You can listen to his speech. And uh, it talks about all of the psychological principles that were covered by Robert Cialdini, professional professor Robert Cialdini uh, in his book, uh, Persuasion. But the thing is, uh, he extended that to talk about more principles of human misjudgment and the way our minds misconstrue things. And so it's an absolutely wonderful resource um, that's freely available on the internet that talks about the way our human mind is frail and makes mistakes all the time. Um, And he just surpassed anything else that you would see in the literature elsewhere. So go and check that out. It's called the Psychology of Human Misjudgment Speech by Charlie Munger. Anyway, two of my quotes that I always reference from Charlie, tell me where I'm going to die and I won't go there. Um, It's the power of incentives. And the second one would be, uh, it's easier to avoid stupidity than it is to seek brilliance. And he, you know, he always talked about this in his Q&A segments with Buffett around, um, he, he's like, he said the rules for living a good life are quite simple, really. You know, you avoid envy, you live within your means, you invest well for the future, you avoid making massive mistakes. And he would just go on and it's like, you can, and he would just be able to rattle these off with the one second's notice of how to live, in his opinion, a successful life. And they were just so succinct. He's just a wonderful person. Um, okay, so do you want to give us the news of the week? There's quite a bit, to be honest, but happily. Uh, we had yeah. retail sales come out. Uh, there's a couple of companies that had some interesting comments, whether they're about inflation or about um, um, cost of doing business increasing. Mm-hmm. Uh, KFC, Collins Food. Uh, deliver a massive result as well. Maybe we'll start on that. I found one interesting, which was with what's going on with Origin at the moment. So you've seen Australian mm. Super's got a blocking stake. They don't want the company to be taken private. They own 17% of Origin. There's been a second deal. But AGL came out and said uh, they actually expect electricity demand to double by 2050. And you kind of, I think we all assume that electricity use is going to reduce. Mm. Uh, and that's part of the way we meet you know, targets about net zero. Uh, they're, they're expecting it to double by 2050, which means, and that's why, and that's what's driven their, their massive investment outside of coal-fired power stations, which they'll end up closing down, I think, within the next 10 or 15 years. So it was interesting to see that. And we always talk about this lack of um, uh, opportunities to invest in clean energy. I think one of the questions today is related to it, but there's basically no companies that you can invest into renewable energies directly on the ASX at the moment, which is kind of a, let's go out there, a blight on the, <laughs> a blight on the Australian yeah, economy. Like the the New Zealand has has two or three, you know, energy companies. Meridian, I think is one of them. The US has heaps, but WinLab was one in Australia. They got taken private, mm. um, but very few options to do that. So that's probably, I found that quite, quite interesting update. And then we had retail sales. I'm not sure how you went on Black Friday. I just... Um, had five yes. packages turn up at my desk today. Just had one <laughs> drop, drop in the door there. Yeah. A little embarrassing, but uh, retail sales underperformed or well, I think below expectations in October. Which is a shame for all those retailers out there. They love this time of year. And a lot of, I think, what was it? Um, clothing was down 1% and restaurants were down 0.4. So people are slowly uh, eating out less and drinking less. I think I mentioned that about our bars or the whole city for some reason was off 20 or 30% in September. Um, 
So whether that's an interest rate hit, maybe something weird happened, the weather was better. Uh, I can't remember exactly. <laughs> uh, and I think we had more inflation data this week too, didn't we? Drew doesn't inflation. remember because he was at the bars. <laughs> <laughs> Making we, up for it. <laughs> yeah. I think we've... Um, we had inflation data today too, didn't we? Or over, I think it was this morning or yesterday morning. It's been a bit of a blackout with 20, 12 hours in the hospital. So, um, but inflation's <laughs> fallen below 5%. <laughs> Drew's still under the influence of all the morphine that they gave him. <laughs> no, I only got one endone and one morphine. So, um, oh, that's beyond. In that 12 hour period, but nothing, nothing like that anymore. No pain killing prescriptions. Um, but inflation fell below 5%. So that's what buoyed the market this week. Uh, so property went up and retailers kind of went up too. Mm. Did you look at the Collins Foods report? I didn't get a chance to get to this. Yeah. So fill me in because I did look at the company about a month ago. I was just doing some research into the business ahead of a, a session that I had on it. But um, like I'm going to get to it because I'm really interested in this business because a lot of people don't really know that it um it doesn't necessarily own. The, the name KFC, it actually licenses it. So, from offshore, um, yeah. yeah. So, tell, tell so us they're a bit rolling more. Out. Is it similar to a Harvey Nor, uh, maybe like a Domino's where they own multiple chains? So, KFC yeah. and Taco Bell yeah. are yeah. the biggest ones. And like all and these the, businesses, the money comes from opening more and more stores until you get to saturation. And if it does, then you start to look overseas, which is what a lot, yeah. lot do. Whether that for this could be New Zealand or, um, I don't think Indonesia, but some of those places. Uh, but I think everyone was expecting it to be worse than it was, but it's probably reflecting what's happening in the economy and that, you know, all the places in the city that are usually full are starting to empty. And then people in the suburbs where you're generally having more mortgage stress might, might be turning to cheaper fast food again. So sales at KFC were up over 14% uh, at, at the business. So all their chains were up over 14% in the six months. Uh, mm. which boosted earnings as well. Um, same store sales at KFC were up 3%, uh, which given where they were were quite high the year before, any, and most retailers are showing year-on-year declines. It's actually a bit of a, an increase, mm. and a bit of a surprise in that period. Well, that's what I expected. I expect, when I looked at it a month or so ago, I expected it to slow down. I was just looking at the share price of so the company's up after this week's pop is up. Uh, 59% year to date. I know Mike Kemp, who I caught up with yesterday. Uh, Mike, uh, he's one of the top 20 shareholders of Collins Food. So he'd be, no wonder he was so happy yesterday. I didn't realize. Um, that would explain why he so, had such a big grin on his face. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> he might have had some chicken. <laughs> he might have had, just come from the, the AGM where he got a, you know some original recipe. Definitely. <laughs> it was a solid, I think, solid result. <laughs> uh, I mean, we're dwindling off the end of the reporting season too, so just a couple of companies here and there. Um, but people are expecting retail sales to be boosted this month and it'd be interesting to see whether the, like the pandemic shift has happened where people were spending significantly more during this period um, or if people are bringing forward Christmas spending as well. So that'll be the big result. But we saw yeah, inflation fell, I think it was to like 4.7%. Um, so it feels like rate hikes might be having an impact, at least on parts of the economy. Um, and there's a growing consensus that rates are basically done um, yeah. slowly. <laughs> it doesn't mean they'll be cut. In fact, they can't. Um, I've lost. Um, <laughs> this is me signing off and <laughs> I'll see you in 2024. So you've got, well, yeah, see you in 2024. I think it was about this time last year you made the call. Yeah, yep, thanks for the reminder. Okay, so the interesting one would be ahead of Bill Mitchell coming in um, yep. was that the government deficit. So this is the idea that he'll that he will, will explain is that a government deficit means they're putting more money into the economy, and that is actually a driver of inflation. So we know through infra, infrastructure spending and all these things, it's adding more money to an economy that's already near capacity, or if not beyond it. So the fact that that's slowly shifting to a they're expecting it to potentially be a surplus given higher tax takings, higher, higher all those sort of prices. That might be the first kind of lever in this um, balancing of inflation, hopefully. As in, uh, but it, what do you mean? As in that will, t- that will be pulled out or that will be pushed back You're in? saying if it's a surplus, it means the government is pulling money out of the economy, okay. through, whether it's through higher taxes or uh, whatever it happens to be. 
It's interesting because in my preparation for uh, BHP, the BHP interview yesterday, I um, was obviously reading the most recent annual reports and tuning into shareholder Q&A and such. And some of the commentary that the BHP team have is that because they're obviously gigantic business. I did not know this, but BHP has paid more dividends than any company in the world over the last three years. It's the yeah, world's number one how much dividend tax they pay across the world. Do they yeah, they pay eight percent of Australia's corporate tax. Yeah, that's in, yeah, that's crazy. Like, think about how many of us suckers are using Apple. Obviously, they don't pay. Who knows what they pay? But um, we can just throw some shade on those guys. Pay more tax, Apple. Um, but like, incredible. Anyway, eight percent of all corporate tax takings. <laughs> yeah, 8% they of are the everything. biggest company in Australia. Biggest mining company in the world. Anyway. When I was thinking, they, I got perspective when I, not only just when I went into the boardroom and I saw there was like 30 seats in there, but um, I got perspective in just researching and talking to them. They can't be like one of these mining companies that's just like, oh, yeah, there's a great tenement over there. We'll go and develop that because it just would never move the needle. So they need to focus on these mega trends. But what they've noticed recently, and this plays into what you were just saying, is a lot of governments around the world are pulling back on things like infrastructure spending, to your point around what are they putting back into the system? And that obviously is having a direct impact on steel prices, on commodity prices, et cetera. And um, it's interesting that it seems like Australia is still pretty committed to spending. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, uh, the OECD said we need to push it back. But, I mean, if you've been in Melbourne's northeast, the northeast link is a massive project. Yeah. I think it's four times over budget and it's just – Funding, funding, funding. Um, but it's a lot over budget in Victoria. I think they're spending like fifteen billion on that. So uh, it is, and it's you know we the papers makes inflation sound like it's simple, spend less. But not all the levers of spending are in our control, and not all the things we're spending on are inflationary either. So mm. uh, I think that's why we always say that monetary policy is such a blunt tool to deal with these things. It has to be a combination of both. Yeah, bloody earth. Um, Kate Morris, who we had on the podcast once before, founder of Adore Beauty. What's going on? Uh, the share price popped, didn't it? Mm. Needed think... something to happen to <laughs> It's been tough because I remember there was a lot of talk about how they uh, – so Adore Beauty does like um, that low – Skincare products. Skincare products and not Woolworths yeah. but other similar stores. Yeah, and basically yeah. they came out and had said they had rejected a takeover offer. Uh, sent the share price booming, um, but it's still well below the IPO price. So I think they timed the IPO incredibly well. Um, yeah, um, 2020, their share improving. price was nearly $7, to put it in perspective, yeah. and their offer was $1.30. thirty. Yeah, exactly. So this is one of the issues of holding on to, like we talk about, I think there's a question in here about selling your losers as well, that yeah. the, the rec- you, you're waiting for a recovery that may never come. And if you bought it at $7, you may never get, I'll say you never get the $7 back, but the risk is you get a takeover at such a depressed price that gets accepted yeah. um, and you never get the upside that you think. So sometimes it is best to cut your losses um, and and move on. Not saying that specifically for a door beauty, but in general, as long as you're reinvesting it somewhere that has that long-term compounding opportunity, as Margaret mm-hmm. would say. Mm-hmm. Did you publish an article in the Financial Review this week? Uh, it might have been a week or two ago. It was actually a spread in that. No. <laughs> uh, they were just they were looking for quotes or input onto the growth in SMSFs, how SMSFs invest, uh, who uses SMSFs. So, um, yeah, I think uh, Tom Richardson oh, yeah, gave me a call. Yeah, it was actually over Cup Weekend. Uh, oh. Just some quotes. I had six charts that explain the SMSF sector, which oh. was. Yeah, so most people with SMSFs are being guided by someone. They generally have higher assets because they want more control and to see what they're investing into. It's also a fixed cost structure um, and it's very much about seeing the investments that's driving it. Cool. I'm surprised Tommy gave you a call over the cup weekend. I thought he might have been at the races. I think he's Sydney-based. Yeah, he is, but um, yeah. still, I feel like it. Tom, if you're listening, I feel like, I feel like let's get you down to the races. Um <laughs> So, um, my hypothetical question for you this week, uh, Mr. Meredith, is um, imagine you're 20 years old again and I give you $200 cash right here, right now, 200 cold ones. $200 um, or 200000 200000 Oh, good. Yeah. 
I don't know what you do with 200 bucks. Um, but um, $200,000, $200,000. You could be 20, you could be 22, just early 20s. You got 200 grand. What do you do with the money? What year is it? Like, where are interest rates set when I get this $200,000? Right now. Oh, no, God. Are you thinking back when you were 20? Like, if, yeah, when I was 20, which you'd buy a whole house outright. Ten years ago, yeah. um, <laughs> you just basically. <laughs> I mean, the history has shown that in the last twenty years, you should have just put this into property, leveraged as much as you could, and bought more and more and more and more and more and more, 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 more property. And I probably have ten million dollars now. Um, yeah. It's. I think it's a very different story today. Uh, and what, what I'd be doing, assuming, I probably put completely at twenty, put fifty to hundred grand away for a deposit flexibility and I put hundred grand into the markets, just build a core portfolio uh, as we would for anyone else, but with a growth growth focus, I think you're going to see more given what interest rates are doing more opportunity in companies and themes and sectors over the next 10 years than probably in property. Mm, That's very polarizing. Thank you for that. Might buy a boat too. It's also very sensible. You might buy a boat if you're a 20. (laughs) Maybe a jet ski. Oh, that's a joke. So, Drew's cancel cancel culture. We're going to, if Drew gets a jet ski, he's off the podcast. Um, (laughs) I'm kidding. I won't get a jet ski. Don't worry about that. (laughs) Um, Anyway, sorry to everyone that has a jet ski out there. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's really interesting. I'd probably, see, I still, I'd probably differ slightly. I'd probably still go with the whole 20. If I could afford it, I'd buy a good quality property. I put 200 grand into it. Um, that's assuming you're probably on the east coast if you're on the west coast I probably would do <laughs> still wouldn't buy a jet ski it'd take a lot for me to buy a jet ski if I'm being honest <laughs> I'm like it would take a lot um, but I would say I'd probably if I wasn't in one of the major eastern cities which is very expensive as we know you'd probably need the 200,000 that's the, the world that we live in um, but if you're able to get away with a deposit of less than that, I would just use that overseas or even more and then just redraw the equity as a line of credit um, because then you could use that money to go on a holiday, no, not on a holiday, but you could use that money to go and invest in that core portfolio. So you just get more leverage is what I'm saying. Like I think younger people just need to be a bit more financially aware, especially people that invest in stocks in their 20s. That's, what, that's my biggest regret is doing it the way I did it. I would have done it very differently. If I knew that I could redraw equity and use that equity as a line of credit against income-producing assets, which there is a question about, so why don't we transition to questions? Um, well, thank you, sir. Um, so the questions that we we're answering today were sent in by some wonderful human beings. If you want to be a wonderful human being, all you've got to do is write into us by clicking the "Ask a Question" link in your podcast player. If you're on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your uh, sound waves. Just click the link there and select the Australian Investors Podcast. Enter your question. If you put in a funny name and your funny name is selected, you get a free pass to the Value Investor Program worth $499. You just write into us if we select your question. Special note, if you want personalized financial advice, you need to go see a financial planner like, say, Drew here or someone that you can find on Money Smart. We don't know your personal circumstances, needs, goals, or objectives. So when you ask your question, make it generalized because we can only give generalized financial advice here on a podcast. If we mention ETFs, super funds, insurance, go and read the terms and conditions, the product disclosure statements, and the target market determinations, the TMDs. They're all available on the issuer's website. So if we talk about a Vanguard ETF, there'll be a Vanguard PDS for that ETF. If we talk about insurance or Australian super, there'll be a PDS for that. Um, so go and check those out. It's really important. All right, let's get to the questions. The chess master from Bridge Street, good name, creative, a very Australian name there, says, and this one I think is for you, Drew, I have a small portion of my portfolio invested in, <laughs> invested in the small cap green energy company called Clearview Technologies. Uh, Clearview Technologies trades under the ticker symbol, guys, of uh, CPV. It is not at all the Clearview that I thought they were talking about when I started reading about it. My investment was based on a bit of a punt rather than any real analysis, apart from the fact that the company is debt free. But the share price has been recently showing some significant upward trend. And I'm curious to understand what the trigger is. I understand that these types of companies are probably not something that you guys endorse, 
but I am keen to get your thoughts. Are you able to make a brief assessment of the company from your perspective and provide some feedback on the potential benefits and risks? Drew. No. <laughs> hey. Uh, no, there's some pretty good quotes on there. So basically it's a company that uh, it's involved in kind of, kind of renewable energy, as I was kind of alluding to before. But it seems like they make a technology that can turn windows into like absorbers of energy that they can then use. I like the quote mm. on the front page. Finally, the bean counters and the greenies are on the same recycled page. Financial returns intersect sustainability objectives. I kind of like that, you know, the, the bit of uh, humor that comes into their, oh, yes. their mission statement. Yeah, I, like um, I think chat on that one. Yeah, I think the ASX wants to know why the share price is rallying too. So for us to work that out <laughs> will be quite challenging. But it feels a lot like a small mining company, the way that uh, and there's a company we probably wouldn't talk about in comparison that, that did quite well during the pandemic. But um, what they've done is they've announced a couple of distribution agreements so that their product is getting closer to some level of commercialization. So when that happens, anything can happen with these stock prices. Um, you want to make sure that the distribution agreements convert. They're, they're not conditional and they convert into real income at some point. Um, and I mean, it sounds like the product is commercial, but you've had a close look at the financial statements, I think. Yeah. Most recent quarterly so shows grand total cash receipts of zero dollars um so it's made no cash in the most recent quarter and that's not terrible some companies don't make any money at all but it basically means that when you approach a company like this you have to treat it for absolutely what it is it's not and cool. that yeah it is speculative as they've said they've taken a punt which i don't like that phrase but that's okay um and the thing is that these types of companies in probably they probably deserve more of a place in like a venture capital setting rather than say on the ASX. So just treat it accordingly. Drew was referencing when he said they, the company says they don't know why the share price rallied from 45 to 65 cents um, because they were pinged. They were issued a speeding ticket by the ASX and they said they don't know. Um, but just to, to, if in case we weren't clear about what the company does, it's, it's an, this is, I'm just quoting it directly, an Australian technology company that operates in the building integrated photovoltaic sector that involves the integration of solar technology into building surfaces, specifically glass and building facades to provide renewable energy. So it sounds like a fantastic thing. Um, and we wish it all the best, obviously, but it is a very small company. And so you've got to treat it accordingly. A lot of the times when these small businesses with 100 mil or sub 100 mil market cap with no revenue uh, on the ASX, basically the only thing that drives it up is sentiment in the short term. So someone said something, as an investor in these types of companies, you just have to be very, very careful that what you're acting on is actual information because there's, every year there's always one or two companies that uh, come to the market and come to investors, they kind of surface through the two, two and a half thousand um, companies and they surface to the top based on price momentum and a lot of like not going to say pump and dump but definitely like people on places like hot copper or on twitter these types of places that talk very positively about a company but have really no substance behind them so keep that in mind um so get rich slow club writes in and says g'day owen and dr andrew dr andrew is that like is it like the vet from the TV? Anyway, uh, G'day, Owen, Dr. Andrew. A <laughs> couple of episodes ago, I heard you talk about, uh, quote, unquote, real dollar cost averaging. What is the difference between a normal one and the real one? I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't know if this is like... This is when we realise that people listen to us a bit too much. Um, I just said, good one. <laughs> good one for calling out our rubbish. Uh, I think it's excellent. Um, no, but there I was... Like, what, what, yeah. Go for it. We're talking inflation-adjusted dollar cost yeah. averaging. That's what the economists call real yeah, dollar course. cost averaging. Yeah, <laughs> it's just this. Oh, I think we see jokes. too many times that when people have a lump sum of capital, they think just you know splitting it up into two payments is dollar cost averaging. And whilst it might help with the psychological aspect of deploying you know five hundred grand into in two hundred fifty thousand dollar lots, it's not real dollar cost averaging. Yeah. So dollar yeah. cost averaging is the idea of averaging your input, your your entry into the market over an extended period of time, which allows you to benefit from different cycles. So you're buying in bull markets when the market's up, you're buying in bear markets and your average price will be, uh, you know, consistently lower or you'll end up 
with a better compounding outcome than if you were trying to time it based on how you felt. Um, so I compare real dollar cost averaging to something like super guarantee, where you're forced to be investing into markets regularly and you're buying usually the same thing every quarter um, and doing it for 25 or 30 years. So it's more that over an extended period of time. Uh, the issue with the dollar cost averaging we're talking about is that if the market turns, a lot of people end up just not doing it anymore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> real dollar cost averaging is uncomfortable. It's got to be a habit because you've got to be dollar cost averaging at the worst time because that's when you get the most benefit. Like exactly. right now, a, a good example of it is right now, Drew, where one or two years ago, easy come, easy go with the money flow, you could uh, put some people were probably saving, you know, two, three thousand dollars more than they are today if they've got a mortgage because the interest rate on their mortgage was bugger all. Like, for example, in my household, we pay $1,500 more or so. I think maybe just under $1,500 more on our mortgage than we did a couple of years ago, right? And so that's $1,500 that's now going to Bank of Melbourne. Thanks for that, Bank of Melbourne. Free plug, no worries. Um, versus our ETF portfolio. So one of the things that people are struggling with at the moment is like their wallets are getting crimped, like their savings is constrained. So what do you do? Well, this is the time when real dollar cost averaging kicks in. And you think to yourself, now, instead of doing $1,500, I'm doing $50. I'm doing $100. Because the hardest thing is not putting the money in. The actual hardest thing is maintaining the habit. Um, there was a quote that I had. I'm actually going to bring this up because I thought it was a wonderful quote. I didn't. I, this is not me. I did not uh, plan this. But um, I think oh, I've lost my quote, Drew. I think it might be on my phone. Because I interviewed uh, – oh, here we go. Shane Parrish, one of the quotes from his, books, clear his book, Clear Thinking, was strength of character comes from habits. And um, it's a really interesting thing. Like we form these habits and we form the habits to exemplify who we want to be. Um, and so if you want to be a long-term compounder, you need to form the habit that would, that would represent you as that person. Um, and so that's what we mean by real is that type of compounding. Ben writes in and says, Ben, not a very creative name, but I love the question. So credit to you, sir. Uh, ben writes in and says, um, hi, Owen and team. I like that because you normally get the doctor and I got nothing and he's just gone team. Maybe he selected the wrong podcast, but that's okay. Um, I'm 37, married with young children. Mm -hmm. Child care costs are killing me, Ben says. I digress. I'm pretty new to the fire concept and interested in managing my portfolio towards the so-called magic 4%. And of course, need that lovely passive income. With all that context, my question is, is there a point when you should stop reinvesting dividends, this is a good one, Drew, and start actually banking the coin? There are obviously plenty of factors at play. I just want you guys to tell me. So we can't give you personal advice, but you're not asking for it anyway. Um, you have given us a lot of information here, Ben. Um, childcare costs, Drew will um, ruminate on that in a second. Uh, the, just to break down what we're talking about here, FIRE stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. It's about living within your means and retiring on your terms, sometimes early. And the magic 4% that Ben referenced is actually the 4% rule where we assume you make a 7% re um, return in retirement. There's 3% inflation, which leaves you with 4% every year to safely withdraw from your retirement balance. Um, Drew, is there a time when you should stop reinvesting dividends and bank the coin? I mean, it's not really fire then, is it? <laughs> I mean, the content. I mean, there's two questions here. One is reinvesting, and then uh, then you drawing income from your portfolio. So, it sounds like you're at a point where you do need to start drawing some income to help, you know, have some flexibility. Because the challenge of fire, as we saw, I think at the Rask event as well, was that you're delaying gratification essentially. That you're delaying consumption today uh, for a period in the future, so mm. you can be. Uh, financially independent and that's not for everyone that takes habit and mindset to be able to do that so um, I think the question of reinvest will always stay say that you should put all your money back into cash and rebalance because the issue with reinvesting is you buying the you buy more of the things that have done better where we'd prefer to be buying low so buying more of the things that have done worse uh, yep. so we'll always say invest automatically but put in a cash account and then reinvest systematically every quarter separate to that yep. um, I mean, I can ruminate on childcare costs, but that's another story for a two-year-old and a five-year-old. So, um, so, so this is just kind of blew my mind. I think you should say, how much do you spend on childcare a fortnight? Fourteen hundred dollars for two days <clears throat> for two kids, which is 
absolutely outrageous. That's before any um, rebate uh, or childcare rebate or anything. And kinder but isn't that is three or four-year-old uh, kinder is free? Yeah. yeah, I just think that's completely wild. Uh, I've got a book on the shelf behind me here from Anna Christina, who's appeared on our finance podcast Kids a few times. Kids Ain't Cheap is the book, and it's how to financially prepare, how to plan financially for parenthood and your family's future. So it's about like long-term investing. It's a good book. It's only just come out, actually. So um, if you're coming to the Ladies Finance Club in Melbourne event, uh, Ladies Finance Club Melbourne event, uh, that is coming up next week or the week after. There's about 10 tickets left. You can use the coupon code RAS for 10% off. Um, I'll be giving away this book, so um, as well as 100 other books, literally. Uh, so come along and learn about this. But Drew, that seems like a lot of money for childcare. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, and I think this is why I think in this con- context, if you're living a reasonable lifestyle and you can generate and you can draw some of that passive income uh, to help support it and feel a bit more comfortable, then yeah, why not? Um, I think you don't, everyone's planning for the future, but you're also incredibly young. So uh, you can either catch up or you'll probably, if you're this committed to investing, you'll probably be fine in terms of your strategy if you happen to draw a bit more income from it for a mm. few years. It's one of those things, isn't it, where um, a lot of people that worry about the thing actually don't have to worry about it. It's the people that yeah. aren't worrying about it. They're the ones that should. Um, I think Nick Majuli talked about this in his book. He's talked, quoted the savings, um, a, a study into savings and budgeting in the United States where he talked about people, uh, the stress of um, budgeting for an outcome is actually more stressful than not achieving the outcome. There's a study that shows that. Um, so people are more fearful of the thing and that causes more problems than actually the thing itself. Um, in this instance, you know, if someone's young and they get the super guarantee, as you said, I think that's a wonderful backstop for people. It's if someone's like on a single income, they work on an ABN, they don't pay themselves super, they're not following all the savings habits. And that's where it becomes a really big problem, in my opinion, um, that savings hygiene. And I, I would I would just say when people are young, just I prefer to just reinvest, just keep reinvesting, don't sweat it, just focus on earning more, spending less, and compounding. Exactly. Um, yeah. Second income in the case of a family can do wonders, assuming that um, you're mindful of anything to do with childcare subsidies. Okay, we've got time for a couple more here, Drew. Um, stock Stumbler says, this is an interesting one. Uh, Hi, guys. I have been investing around 20% of my income over the past 18 months with some basic ETFs like IOZ, IVV, along with some high-quality businesses like CSL and Washington HSL Pattinson, along with some others that make up around 50% of my portfolio with ETFs and the other 50%. My question is, how long do I give myself to, uh, to see if I can beat the market before I make a decision to continue picking some stocks or direct all of my investments towards core ETFs? True. Forever. You reckon forever? Like, the, you, there's no reason you have to beat the market any given year. The market could fall 20% and, you're, uh, and you and you know, do positive or you 18, you do negative 18%. Like, the mar- I don't think your focus should only be on the market. It should be on compounding and, and growing the value of your wealth over time. So, I think you can always balance both. And the important thing is making sure you're engaged in investing, um, which mm. it sounds like you are. You know, you're, yeah. you're buying quality businesses there and maybe like someone else speculating a little bit in small areas. But the fact that you're exposed to market, I think, is the most important thing. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, worrying about short-term returns when you're probably investing for 20 or 30 years, whether you're beating the market with five stock picks, I think is less relevant as long as you've got the core of your portfolio right. Yeah, like it. Um, I would probably just take a slightly different approach and I would say, it's great to continue to invest in companies for, for forever, as Drew would say, but a lot of people don't have the ongoing curiosity and the passion for it. A way you can determine if you're any good at it is to download is to download or use an app like Nevexa, uh, Nevexa, N-A-V-E-X-A, or ShareSite, and they can integrate directly with your investing brokerage account your, or your app, uh, and it will track your portfolio against benchmarks like a 60-40 portfolio or track it against uh, an ASX 200 index or, or track it against another ETF. And you can actually see after two or three years, is what I would say, 
how you're doing and how you're faring. And that trap of reflection is actually a really good activity for everyone to do. Rosie writes in and says, I would like to add an ASX 200 ETF to my portfolio. I noticed that the BetaShares A200 ETF is currently about $177 per unit, while the iShares IOZ ETF is currently listed at about $28 per unit. Why the massive price difference for what is essentially the same ETF? And why would someone pick one over the other? The answer to that question, Rosie, is you can cut a pizza into 10 slices or you can cut it into five. Exactly. It doesn't really matter how many ways you cut it. Uh, it's still the same thing underneath. So that's what I would say. It doesn't make a difference. It's just that you're you're not betting on the total value of the like the share price. What you're betting on is how many units you can get. Uh, Drew? Yeah, see, I think it's a common question that comes up all the time. So, uh, but exactly right. You're still getting the same exposure to the market and it only really matters in when it comes to reinvestment that if yeah. you're automatically reinvesting on very small amounts, then it takes longer to buy a new unit, $177. So I usually run on, we usually run on cost and liquidity. Both are very similar. We naturally prefer iShares. Um, no offense to, to beta shares, but, you know, the BlackRock, uh, name is you know the biggest asset manager in the world, um, mm. and I think the cost is pretty much the same. Maybe beta shares are just undercut BlackRock slightly, yeah. um, but you're basically buying the same thing. It just has a slightly different unit price because they started at different times, or started at a different unit price at the beginning. Yeah. So, for example, Rosie, uh, when the ETFs may have started, one may have started at and said day one oh, we're going to price this at 100. The other one says we're going to price it at 20, um, and over time those fluctuate. And eventually what they can do is they can actually cut, they can divide it up again. So again, if if one of the ETFs gets to $200 and more people like yourself write in and say, hey, this this is too high, I can't reinvest my $5 dividend anymore, uh, then, then what, the, what they might do is they might break it up again. They might do what's called a stock split. And in that case, they'd go from $200 and they might say, we're going to do a one for 10. So meaning that you'll get 10 new ones for the one that you had previously. So then it drops back down to 20. And it really doesn't matter. It's kind of like, um, I had Domino's pizza the other night. It was absolutely horrible. I feel like I had hallucinations the next day because I ate this pizza. Shout out to Domino's. Um, we'll, we'll take a I, discount code. <laughs> the last time I had Domino's, I absolutely loved it. But this time around, it was just a shocking experience. Anyway, um, which is not great. Probably um, shouldn't tell the audience that you're having Domino's twice. Yeah, was it last uh, week anyway. too? No, 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 just once. Anyway, um, my point is like it matters what you're getting inside the box, not like how much, you know, what what kind of cost it is or how many ways it's cut. Basically, you it matters what you're getting. And in this case, you're getting exactly the same thing, just cut in a different way. Uh, so you can just choose the one, as Drew said, which most suits your uh, goals. Dunning-Kruger, final question. Dunning's wrote it in a few times. Uh, my first investment was an ETF that was ethically minded, IMPQ, which is the perennial better future one. We've had... Uh, co-portfolio manager or lead analyst on the show before. I didn't know anything about investing, but I dove in and invested and was buying more and more. And it went further down. Because I was awfully bad at investing, I'm now building a core portfolio after listening to your podcast for the last couple of years. And a previous episode told me that there's sometimes huge fees in Korean ETFs. Sure enough, this one's huge. So my question is, the ETF I own is now way down. So do I keep buying in even though the fees are so high or do I sell out, cut my losses and invest in my core portfolio? I think the important one here is knowing what you're paying for. So that's part of the golden rules is we use passive and active management uh, in different mm. cases. And green or you know ethical or ESG investing requires a lot more work than someone who's basically trying to track the index. Um, so that's why the fee on this is about, I think, 1% plus performance fee. Um, and that's, you know, you have to do a lot more work to find out how bad or good a company is and put that portfolio together. So I'd always be, there's two questions here. One would be cutting losses and two be the question of fees. So on the fee question, it's very much, are they doing something significantly different that you could buy elsewhere? And you have to answer that question yourself. I'm not going to, I think that would be too much personal advice. Mm -hmm. uh, and the second one would be about cutting losses. Um, and it probably relates to that like a door beauty discussion we had at the beginning, which is, uh, is this, does this, do you still align with the investments in this? Do you think the opportunity with the, with this portfolio is still there? Uh, and uh, the last one is, are you still comfortable holding it or is there better growth potential and recovery potential somewhere else? We're very mm -hmm. big on when something bad happens, 
cut your losses as, as emotionally difficult as it can be, but make sure you're applying it to something where you have the potential to recoup that and hopefully compound over a longer period of time. Mm. So don't make a mistake rushing. in rushing yeah, to the exits. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. you know, there's things like arc where it's significantly changed and maybe some, like a lot of those adore, all these things are down 80 or 90%. They may never recover enough to get you back to break even, but, you know, this yeah. this is the I think the better future product. So it's smaller companies with a green tilt, both of which have done incredibly badly uh, for economic reasons or just preference for large companies. Um, and I don't think this fund or ETF is alone within that sector as as performing that way. Um, so it's whether that's still an option and whether you still align with it. Um, mm. I, don't, yeah. I don't see there's like a venture capital investment that's fallen ninety percent and will never recover. Yeah. In terms of comparison um, to green investing. Yeah, fair enough. Um, while I formulate a response to Dunning Kruger here, maybe um, <laughs> you should get your uh, your joke of the week, your dad joke. Oh, it's my, ready. Don't my, worry. My, I just Googled oh, okay. dad, wow. dad joke involving fennel. But okay. <laughs> came up. The fennel frontier was one. <laughs> oh, gosh. The fennel okay. countdown. Oh, my gosh. Okay, hold on a second. Um, I would just say with this it's one. It's related, though. Sunk cost fallacy is a really big thing you invest and uh, or price anchoring in this case and trying to make a decision under those uh, situations is difficult uh if i relate this back to shane's book that i've been reading recently um positioning is the thing that improves outcomes uh, not necessarily decision making by itself as drew just loses control of his headphones so it's been a Um, rough week (laughs) um so if you think about positioning your portfolio for the future that's basically what we're talking about. And so try not to look at the past as a gauge to the future. Um, I think it was Maynard Keynes that said, I don't think the remedy for a, a falling stock price is to sell at the bottom. Um, and sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Another quote that I'll bring in was from Joe Mager, a friend of mine, really good investor, who said, like, you should treat your portfolio every day as if you are buying that portfolio because you have the option to sh- sell at any moment. And I think in this instance, um, obviously, I can't tell them what to do, but it's just weighing it up against your long-term goals and if it still fits within that framework. Um, I I think one of the mistakes that people make is recency bias where they look at a company or a fund's performance over one or two years and they don't consider the environment that they're in. So green or ethical style companies and strategies tend to just invest in high quality industrial businesses. And if it's a small cap strategy, as Drew was saying, you tend to end up with small cap industrial companies. And those types of companies tend to do well in uh, in, in an environment where interest rates are flat or lower uh, because they're the types of businesses that tend to benefit from an expanding economy and from monetary policy easing. Um, and this is something that many people don't understand who are not in investment research is there are different strategies for different market environments and you need to understand that in order to make an informed decision. In this case, you're going to get volatility, you're going to get um, a lot of uncertainty on the way down, but there will come a time when strategies like this, I'm not saying this one in particular, but like this do pay off. So it's about knowing where that sits. And finally, if your fee budget, if you've realized an investment is a lot higher fee than you thought it was, you should have a fee budget of how much are you going to spend as fees for my portfolio. And if this is not where you want to allocate more of the fee budget, don't do it. Like you always say this all the time, Drew, that you know Australian Super's balance strategy has a blended fee of around about 0.75%. So if most of the portfolio is in super low cost in ETFs and it's only this one thing that's a bit more expensive, well, maybe that's okay. But if they're all like this, then maybe there's another constraint there that people need to put in place. Hopefully that waffling does something. But if you're in contact with Waddle Partners and Drew Meredith, you can go online. There's a link in your podcast player that says ask, not ask question, that says financial planning. Click on that and you get matched with a financial planner. Um, you can book a call with Fatuma or Renato or someone in the team at Waddle Partners if you're in retirement. Get in contact with them. Um, and if you want to stick around and hear what we've got to say next week, be sure to subscribe to the Australian Investors Podcast. Or if you're on YouTube, hit subscribe and you'll get notified whenever we go live. 
Drew, we've got to see out the rest of today's show with one very important ingredient. Actually, we've got two. One is the best name, and I'll go for the first one, which is the Chess Master from Bridge Street. I thought that was a wonderful name. If that's you, write into us. You won the award. Congratulations. But Drew, the thing that I really want to hear is this week's dad joke. Yeah, I lost concentration last time. Something happened off air. Uh, <laughs> so I'm all on top this time. Uh, and I think I have to stick with the salad puns in this case. Mm-hmm. It's fitting. Uh, just to, like, like we did with the fish bank or the river bank. Um, mm-hmm. So this week we've got, what do you call a chicken with salad in his eyes? Don't know. Chicken sees a salad. <laughs> Not bad. It's <laughs> a good one. <laughs> Not bad, mate. Not bad. Um, I think that's pretty good. I'll give you a 7 out of 10. I'll that's a good dad that. joke. That's a good dad that. joke. Assuming your kids know what a Caesar salad is, I think that's a pretty good joke. Well, mate, this has been heaps of fun as always. So uh, thanks for joining me. Awesome. Good to see you. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.